Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. It's like Paul has been, over 11 chapters of Romans, climbing this mountain, just laying out all this theology, and then he gets up to the top of the mountain, and he's like he's up there kind of looking around, just surveying all that he has said, all that he has just laid out about the plan of salvation and God's wisdom, and he is just overwhelmed. He just spontaneously bursts into praise and says, oh, I mean, that oh is an exclamation. It's just like, he's overwhelmed. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable are his ways. He's just bursting into worship as he meditates on what has happened here. He, he thinks about uh, the wisdom and knowledge of God, verse 33. We just went through a sermon series on Proverbs. And remember, we made a distinction between the two, that you can have knowledge, but that won't necessarily benefit you if you don't know how to apply that knowledge. That's what we call wisdom. And so in this verse, we see that God, of course, has all knowledge, knows all things. There's nothing that God doesn't know, but it's not just that God knows all things. It's that he's a wise God, too, so he knows how to take what he knows and apply them in the best possible way in planning out this plan of salvation. And Paul just marvels at the way he's worked this out for Jew and Gentile, and basically what Paul is saying is that this is unlike anything that I would have planned. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. What Paul is basically saying is this is really kind of surprising and unpredictable, how God would do this. But here's Paul just spontaneously bursting into this bit of praise. And so we, we learn something here from this. One is this. Proper worship is rooted in good theology. <laughs> I mean, that's what's happened here. 11 chapters of, of nothing but theology. And it leads to an act of worship. But then a corollary to that is this. Proper theology should always result in worship. I mean, if your theology doesn't make your heart leap, if your theology doesn't make you want to burst into praise... There's either something wrong with that theology or there's something wrong with your response to that theology. But proper words, that's why we teach theology here because we think that's going to move you toward worship. That's what it's for. That's what's happened here in the life of Paul. But you see where all this ends up at the very end of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. The sovereign plan of salvation should result in glory being given to him. Now, what does that have to do with the Reformation? Well, <clears throat> let me explain it this way. There was a book that Luther wrote in 1525, Martin Luther, and the book was called The Bondage of the Will. And in this book, Luther is having a debate with a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus is a very popular scholar, and they're going back and forth, and the nature of the debate is this. Is salvation totally 100% of God's grace, 
or does salvation result in some way between man and God? And at the center of this book, the bondage of the will, is this question of the human will, free will. Do we have free will or, or don't we? And so this has been, you know, of course, a hotly debated subject for centuries. But Luther, when at the end of his life, he looked back at this book, Bondage of the Will, and he said, that's the most important thing I've ever written. He said, I think it was that and the, his children's catechism. He said, basically, you can get rid of everything else, but Bondage of the Will, that's my, basically my crowning achievement. So this was highly important in the mind of Luther. And this was the case that, that Luther laid out. He said, he said, salvation has to do with absolutely nothing in us. Not even our free will. Not even our free will. He makes the point that it's, it's not our free will that attracts God to us. It's not our free will that somehow obligates God to come and save us. There's nothing in the way we use our free will that we can then use to say, okay, God, I contributed now my part, now you do your part. You hold up your end of the bargain and save me. And if you look back in the text, you can see Paul, he's not really talking specifically about free will here, but look what he says in verse 34 and 35. He's asking these rhetorical questions. He says, who has known the mind of God, or who has been his counselor? You know, in other words, who has ever taught God something? Who has ever come to God and giving him information that he didn't know? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is nobody. That's absurd. But then in verse 35, a similar question. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has come along and did anything for God so that God was then obligated to do something for him? Who has ever put God in his debt? And the implied answer is, nobody. God is not obligated to anybody to do anything, even when it comes to the use of our, of our free will. So as an example, let's just set it up this way. You and your neighbor... You both hear the gospel. You believe the gospel. Your neighbor doesn't believe the gospel. Why? What's the difference? How would you answer that question? What's, what's the difference? What sets the two of you apart? Now, if you say something like, well, it was because I had the wisdom to make a choice. It was because I decided to receive Jesus. It was because of the decision that I made, the exercise of my free will. If you say it in that way, don't you see that you're pointing to something in you that is the difference between you and your neighbor when it comes to salvation? Now, you might not say, call it a good work. You might not say that it's some kind of religious observance, but... It's something in you. And if there's something in you that is, in the end, the reason why you come to faith in Christ, then that's a ground for boasting. Now, maybe you wouldn't boast in that. Maybe you wouldn't proclaim that in a boastful way, but it's, it's a reason to boast. It's a ground for boasting. 
And if we can boast in anything with regard to our salvation, we're taking just a little bit of glory from God. A little bit of credit that really ought to go to God, we're kind of taking for ourselves. And remember at the call to worship that Andrew read to us, here's what God says, I'm the Lord, that's my name, and my glory I give to nobody. It's all about his glory. His glory alone. Calvin compared the will to a horse. He said, it's like, picture a horse where Satan is riding the horse. That horse is going to go wherever Satan wants it to go. The horse is freely going to go in that way, but he's being ridden by Satan. And there's no way he can go any other direction than the way Satan wants that horse to go. The horse is, in a sense, in bondage. And Calvin is saying that's the way the will is in the sinful state, the unregenerate state. Before a person becomes a Christian, the will is in bondage, and it cannot free itself from that bondage. What needs to happen is God's got to get on the horse. The Holy Spirit's got to get on the horse and start steering it in God's sovereign will in a different direction. And that's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Now, I know this is controversial. It's always been controversial. Um, and maybe you have different opinions about this. I, I want to make, make it clear. We know there are different opinions about the role of free will and salvation, and we're, we're, you're all welcome here, whether you agree with Luther's view or our view at all. But I'm sharing this with you because I want you to see that in Luther's eye, this was an important thing. It was a central thing. It wasn't some side topic to be left to the theologians in the ivory towers. Luther thought it was essential. And I think Christians sometimes avoid talking about it because we don't want to get in arguments, and that's fair, I understand that, but um, it is something for us to consider. You know what it says in John chapter 1, verse 13? I just want to read this. Um, It's just occurred to me, this passage, right before I, I got up here into the pulpit, that's relevant to the question, John 1.13, talks about people who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to believe. So this is where it gets kind of tricky. I know what you're thinking is, well, then I don't have to believe. Well, but you do. Because the Bible calls you to believe. The Bible says who, whoever believes. But the question is, where does that capacity to believe come from? Does it come from you? Is it something in your soul and in your heart? Or does that capacity come by the gracious gift of God? Because if you can ascribe it all to God, even your ability to believe, then you can truly say to God alone be the glory. So let me share this passage. This is what Luther wrote. It's kind of a long passage, but I think it's helpful. This is from Bondage of the Will. Luther says, he says, I should not want free will to be given me, nor anything to be left in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation, not merely because in the face of so many dangers and adversities and assaults of the devil I could not stand my ground, but because even were there no dangers, I should still be forced to labor with no guarantee of success, Basically, what he's saying is if it was about my free will, I wouldn't have used it rightly anyway. My free will would not have naturally led me to choose Christ. But now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of his, 
and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and that he is also great and powerful so that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. So for Luther, this becomes a source of comfort for him. He's like, if it's all about my free will to receive Jesus, you know, you might also, also ask, is it about my free will then to hang on to Jesus? And what happens if I don't? But what Luther is saying is, no, God's will overrides my will and protects me from being plucked out of his hand. You might ask, why is this even important to, to wrestle with? Why is this an issue we need to talk about? I think there is one practical application, and that's this. I think this is the only thing, this particular view of the will and the sovereignty of God and salvation, it's the only thing ultimately that can keep you from feeling prideful and self-righteous and snobbish about being a Christian. Because you cannot look at your neighbor and say, well, here's why I'm a Christian and you're not. I was just smart enough to choose. I know you wouldn't say it that way. I know that. But that's kind of what you're saying if you hold to this kind of free will theology. The, the only thing that's going to humble you is to say, look, the only reason I'm a Christian is because God in his mercy had grace and pursued me and changed me. It was his idea, not mine. He came after me. I didn't go after him. I'm a Christian by grace alone to the glory of God alone. There's no pride in that. It's a humbling thing, and it's good when we're humbled. So all glory goes to God for your salvation. That's the first thing. Okay, now, now we're like totally shifting gears here. <laughs> like Sermon part two. All glory also should go to God alone in your vocation. This was another result, consequence of the Reformation that was very significant, that all glory should go to God in your vocation. By vocation, I mean your occupation, your, your role in life, your function, whatever it is you, you do for a living, not necessarily for money, just whatever you're called to do, your calling in life, we might say, is your vocation. Now, at the time of the Reformation, in the Catholic Church at the time, there was this very strong division between clergy and laity. Very sharp division. And so in the minds of pretty much all Christians at the time, it went like this. The clergy, that is the church workers, the priests and the nuns and the monks and the bishops and the abbots and the friars, all these various positions in the church, these are people who have truly received a calling from God. They are the ones who can truly work for God's glory because they're working for the church. Now, remember what we've learned about the view of the gospel at that time, which is that the gospel um, or, or that uh, salvation is something that can only be gained by accumulating a certain amount of merit. And so in the minds of a lot of people, it's like, well, you know, if I want to get to heaven or if I at least want to spend less time in purgatory, really the fast track to do that is to make myself a church worker. Because then I can pray and fast and worship full time, all day long, every day. And if I do that all my life, chances are good I'm going to pile up enough merit that God's going to be happy with me. And so that was the view, that this is, this is God-glorifying work, church work. 
But the laity, laymen, laywomen, well, you know, being a shopkeeper or a blacksmith or, or whatever, that was considered, you know, ordinary, second-class job. That was considered necessary. Everybody knew that these jobs had to be done, but, but these were worldly jobs. And there's really no way in those ordinary occupations to glorify God. There's really nothing in them that would be pleasing to God in any way. If you really want to please God in your occupation, you've got to be a church worker. And so if you look at our passage here, Romans 11, 36, look at this verse. Look what it says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So that phrase, all things, everything. That's a, a universal, inclusive statement. It, it's not saying just in church things or just in spiritual things as opposed um, to secular things. This is, this is all things, all things on heaven and on earth. They come from him, from God as their source. They go through him, that is they're held together and sustained by him, and they are to him. That means they all eventually flow toward him and are for him. And so the reformers saw this and, and they thought, wow, what this means is that it's not just church work that can glorify God. It's all of our activities under the sun on the earth. And this was just an absolutely revolutionary insight. I, I wish I had the words to, to describe how much this changed the world. <laughs> because people at that time... You know, they, they got to thinking, wait a minute, you mean my tiny little insignificant ordinary routine life can be glorifying to God? You know, if we could modernize it, we might say, you mean when I'm changing a diaper or finishing a tax return or ringing up a sale in the store or meeting a client or fixing my toilet, that I can glorify God in that? And the reformers said, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. 1 Corinthians 10, this is a, a description of uh, Paul's talking about going to somebody's house to eat a meal and what happens if they said meat before you and maybe it was sacrificed to idols and so Paul's kind of working through that. But in the end, he concludes this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking is about as routine and small and ordinary as you can think of, right? You can eat a meal to the glory of God. The smallest, most routine activities can be done for his glory. This is what gives life meaning. This is what changes everything. The result of this idea is not that everybody becomes a church worker, but every kind of work, lawful work... <laughs> Every kind of lawful work becomes a sacred calling. So here's how Luther said it. Another quote from Luther. The work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. To the degree that you're doing this through faith in the God who has redeemed you and saved you, you're bringing 
glory to him, no matter how insignificant it might seem to you. A couple examples of this. John Calvin, every Sunday after he preached, he would make sure that the doors were locked to the church. And I guess we do that here, too. Our deacons lock the doors after our service. But Calvin had a specific purpose in mind. He locked the doors because, quite frankly, he didn't want people coming back in the church. He wanted them out in the world, serving God, glorifying him in their occupations and vocations. He locked the doors for that specific purpose. Some of you know a guy named Josh Rodenbeck. (coughs) Josh and Mandy... um, we're here at New Life for uh, several years. They started our YAMS ministry, actually, and Josh uh, left to go to seminary at Covenant Seminary, and um, he's been there for a few years, and he called me the other day, and we were talking, I've gotten permission from Josh to share this story with you, and um, <clears throat> Josh said, well, you know, I've been going through seminary, it's been going well, uh, I'm trying to think about what I'm supposed to do, you know, I was thinking about being a pastor, but that's not really working out. Um, I, I thought about the chaplaincy because Josh served in the military, so he thought maybe I'll be a chaplain. But he said just doors were closing. That wasn't really working out. And so I've decided I'm not going to be a chaplain and I'm not going to be a pastor. What I'm going to do is be a plumber. He, he's got a job as a plumber in St. Louis, and he's got some options in Michigan, and he's going to move to Grand Rapids with a seminary degree and be a plumber. Praise God. <laughs> and I told him, I said, Josh, I sure hope you don't think that that in any way is any kind of a step down from being in seminary or pursuing the ministry. It is not. Josh is going to be able to glorify God just as much fixing people's pipes as I glorify God by standing here before you preaching the word to the degree that we're doing it by faith. So, the Reformation just ends up having enormous consequences just for, for the world. Um, we could share many examples, but in terms of education, you know, as people begin to see that this, is, that this is changing our view of reality, this is changing our view of just ordinary work and occupation and vocation, what the Reformers said is we have got to teach people how to read so they can read the Bible. You know, the Bible was in Latin, and and the services were in Latin, as I explained to you. Nobody really knew the Bible. Well, now the Bible is beginning to be translated into native languages, and people were reading it. Well, but a lot of people couldn't read it because they couldn't read. The only people who could read were wealthy people and people in the church. And so the reformers said, we got to teach people. we got to get them into schools. we got to teach them how to read so they can read the Bible. And then they went on and said, we got to teach them to read the classics. we got to teach them to read all kinds of things. It was William Tyndale who actually said to the Pope, he said, one day I would like it for the boy who drives the plow, Pope, to know more about the scriptures than you. (laughs) And that's possible if people can read. And so the reformers put this huge emphasis on education. And a a lot of the great universities in our country, um, Princeton and Harvard, started as Christian colleges. It was Christians who started these institutions of education. In the area of art, absolutely transformed by the Reformation. You know Johann Sebastian Bach, who, uh, one of the great composers of all time, who lived in the 1700s, always signed his musical scores at the bottom with those three letters, S-D-G, 
sola deo gloria to god alone be the glory everything he wrote musically he gave it gave the glory to god whether it was a religious piece that was written specifically with a biblical text in mind or whether it was a more you know so-called secular piece that didn't have any kind of biblical conduct he's content he still said i'm doing this for the glory of god and when it comes to our culture or just society in general absolutely transformed what happened after the Reformation is uh, the, the views and the doctrines of the Reformation began to spread throughout Europe and into England. There were other you know, groups that, that came out of that. One group was called the Puritans, and the Puritans began to pick up where Luther and Calvin and others had left off. And um, there was a guy named Jim, uh, excuse me, John Winthrop. Maybe if you've been in an American history class lately, you, you might remember that name. John Winthrop came out of the Puritan movement and was on a ship called the Mayflower. And he had a bunch of other people on the Mayflower there with him. And John Winthrop was a guy who was heavily influenced by John Calvin and some of the reforms that Calvin did in Geneva. And Winthrop preaches this sermon to the people on the ship and he says here's what we're going to do as we go to this new world we're going to start a city on a hill which is a reference to the book of Matthew and it's going to be a place that the whole world is going to look at and admire and want to be like based on these doctrines that came out of the reformation and that place that he went to has come to be known as the United States of America and so our country's founding does owe something to the doctrines of the Reformation. I mean, think about that. Columbus discovered the New World in the late 1400s, right about the time that the Reformation broke out. So we could go on and on and talk about other consequences of the Reformation. But I hope through this series you've been able to see how important this is. Um, these men of the Reformation were not perfect men, as we learned last week, but it was the occasion through which God in his grace recovered the gospel for you and me, the same gospel that we preach here and that we believe. And if that's you, you're a Christian, you, you believe in this gospel, you trust in this Jesus, and you're living by faith, the, the assurance that I want you to have today, friends, is that there is meaning to your life. You, you might be tired of your job, you might be sick of being in school, you might be wondering what purpose is this serving? But I wonder, how would it change your perspective if you were mindful intentionally of the fact that your jobs can be done to the glory of God? That everything you do Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, we're not just glorifying God on Sunday, we're glorifying God Monday through Saturday. Whether you're a college professor, or a college student, or a doctor, or a teacher, or a nurse, or a stay-at-home mom, or a printer, or a plumber, or an attorney, or an accountant, or a farmer. Whatever you do, you have a sacred calling. You have holy responsibilities. And as Calvin said, there is no sacrifice more pleasing to God than applying yourself diligently to whatever it is that God has called you to do and to do it all for his glory and for his glory alone. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are the Lord of history, that your work didn't stop when the Bible was written, but you have continued to work, and you've done marvelous things in our past, including 
this great event in which you recovered the gospel for us. Thank you, Father. Give us deep hearts of gratitude and thankfulness to you. Keep us humble as we walk with you, and help us, Lord, to see our callings as an opportunity to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.